The AI itself is coming fast commodity and it's just up to the clients to come up with the novel ideas. Could we actually apply AI on this and this? And instead of having to go through three year research road, we can apply AI in two days. How is AI impacting the cost of running the data center? The cost of implementation, scaling and training. My guest today is Ari Juntunen, the CTO of Finland-based Eleanor, a content and information management company founded on his kitchen table. Today, Eleanor serves customers in multiple industries, including insurance, banking and government. Now, before we get started, I just have to tell you, we made this recording at IBM's event Think 2018 in Las Vegas as they were tearing the site down. We just set everything up, all our microphones and equipment, and before we knew it, the convention crew began literally tearing down the booths around us. So you'll hear some occasional commotion through a discussion, but I think it just adds to the character. So apologies for that, but we think you'll enjoy the conversation. Hi, I'm Des Blanchfield, and this is From Here to AI, a podcast that gives you real stories and best practices to help you navigate your journey to implementing AI. Hi, Ari. Thanks for joining me on this podcast. Great to uh, meet you in person, finally. Great to meet you. So we spoke earlier and, and we got to know quite a bit about you, but uh, I thought we'd just recap on some of that. So um, firstly, could you just introduce yourself and uh, tell us a little about your role in your company? Okay. My name is Ari Juntunen. I work as a CTO at Elinar. I'm an AI architect and an IT nerd. My role is to meet clients and uh, basically solve problems. Right. I'm problem solver. You're a problem solver. I can relate to that. Um, I think most of the uh, technical people I've met that are successful in business describe themselves as problem solvers. They, it doesn't matter what problem they're solving, uh, commercial, financial, people or otherwise, they, they see it as problem solving. It's sort of an engineering background. Um, tell us a little about sort of your early years, you know, uh, start from childhood. What sort of got you excited about technology and computers and the whole space of IT? And how did you morph from that into, I guess, a more of a business space? Well, I pretty much knew what I would become when I was kind of starting school, first and second grade. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, but it was till age of 10 when I got my first computer. What sort was it? Commodore 16. Oh my goodness, I had a Commodore 64 so I can relate to that. Yeah, well, 16 was much less powerful and you could get games for it. Yep. So I had to learn how to, how to basically program from the scratch. Right. So in basic or assembler? Basic. Right, yeah. Actually, the Commodore Basic was pretty powerful, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And uh, but the, when I remember when I was like ten and eleven, the most difficult part for me was to generate a maze. Right. Where you could actually go into all the locations, and it would be unique for each run. Okay. And that was for for a ten-year-old kid. That's a very good difficult challenge. Yeah. From from reading your background, I guess one of the things I noticed more than anything is you're, you you've you've got a, a process and a methodology that you kind of, you're the center of the universe. You look to yourself for innovation and drive and then you build things around you. But I think, you know, growing up in a, in a small town in a remote area, you build that, I, I guess, approach to life that, you know, you count on yourself first and nothing else around you. So let's dive into your role. Tell us about your role in the company itself. I mean, you, you founded it with a partner. Um, it, it, it grew for, through a number of different, I guess, evolutionary stages. Let's get to know you professionally now and, and a little bit about your role and then the company itself. Okay, so I'm CTO. I, I, I feel I have privileged uh, 
capability yep. to uh, to work with things. Uh, I don't have to deal with administrative matters. Right. I abhor them actually. Yep. So it's it's much easier for my, my kind of the, what I am is I'm an innovator. Yep. Uh, I'm checking. I can do basically almost anything I put my mind onto. Right. So my role is to look into new technologies and make sure that the promising technologies are basically integrated in our service portfolio. So let's get some insight into what the company currently does. What, what's your core focus? What market space you're after? And what sort of services do you offer? So we have had a long history with enterprise content management. Managing, yep. managing content, archiving, case management, uh, content center processes, content yep. analytics, and all that kind of, uh, everything that relates to content. Okay. And a few years back, we saw a huge opportunity. Now that the AI has matured a lot. Yeah. Back, back in when I was in university and you wanted to do an AI solution, you started training it. Mm-hmm. And in two years, you checked out how it worked. Right. And yeah. if it didn't work, you started over again. Yeah. So the, si- cycle two of de- years. yeah. so the cycle of development was kind of awfully slow. Yeah. But now we have so powerful. GPU accelerators, for example, yeah. that you can prototype, you can test, you can drive things out so much faster. Sure. So, so two years, uh, three, and now three years ago, we started developing our uh, own AI practice, and it's been really, really fun. Okay. To, to do it. Um, so now we have solutions that can actually understand and make sense yeah. of unstructured. For example, we have a package solution. Privacy data on GDPR. Right. Tell me, I, I'm interested. To, so, I mean, content management is a um, what I would call a niche space in that it's something that people, their companies tend to have to evolve and grow to a certain point or even a scale before they start thinking about it in a mature sense. I mean, we see a lot of content management platforms like WordPress and other open source platforms for, I guess, blogs and general wikis. But when you think about uh, enterprise content management, it's a, it's a completely different world, isn't it? It's, it's not even really remotely related. It's a, 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 a whole of business content sort of management layer, isn't it? Yes, and it's, it's about critic, business critical content, like like an archive for an insurance company, a pension insurance company. Yeah. That's basically the... They, they live or die with it. Yeah. Because everything on those, those businesses is content-centric. So, so if, if you don't have a proper records-keeping archiving on such business, or it's done, for example, right. you do nothing. Yeah. So, so that's kind of all different kind of a story when you move into high availability, high security solutions that require very precise kind of rules on who can access, when they can access, and right. what they can access. So uh, at what point did you decide to sort of start looking at uh, how artificial intelligence could, could help content management at the enterprise level, so enterprise content management, and, and what kind of use cases did it start with? Well, basically, we have been working with content analytics for a fairly long time. Okay. Uh, but we felt it's limited. Yeah. Content analytics is still basically working on the sentence level. Mm-hmm. But... Many of our clients need something that can work on a document level, make an understanding of a document using a right. similar methodology as human does. Yep. So that, that was a kind of a, why we moved to AI yep. space. And um, have you got a couple of examples you can give us as to the use cases that sort of presented themselves that caused you to decide to throw AI at this in the first place? Was there a, a particular one client or one opportunity where you went and thought, you know what, we've got 
thousands or tens of thousands or millions of documents if we could just put some machine learning behind this or whatever the case may be. Give us a couple of examples of the use case or even just one use case that made, the set, made, well, made sense to take the route down to applying AI and machine learning and other things on enterprise content management. Okay, let's take very simple use. Well, it's simple, but easily understandable use case yeah. on domain of content analytics. Let's take a crime investigation. Okay. Police confiscates 200 hard drives. Yep. And then they spent next two years going through what's on them. Yep. Now, let's say we spent two years, uh, two, sorry, two weeks at the beginning of the investigation to prepare training data for AI. This is very interesting and critical for uh, investigation. Right. This is possibly interesting and this is mundane in no way related to. Yeah. And let's say we, w we would be investigating a complex money laundering scheme. And we would be very interested about this individual's uh, contacts with other businesses. Yep. So what we can do is we can create an AI that is able to extract this information and pass that this to IBM Watson Explorer, for example. Right. So instead of having to spend two two years working with the material, yep. they can actually do it in two months. Okay. With help of an AI, because AI can so much faster to create insight. This is important, this is not important. Yeah. And make the decision similar way as human does. So essentially we are taking a highly skilled crime investigator in this case and make that person to provide us samples. Right. What is relevant in this case. And okay. then we can capture that and repeat and repeat and repeat with very high speed. Yeah, and I guess there's a couple of selling points there. I mean, um, one of the things you highlighted there, I guess the, the human curation, I'm, I'm a big fan of the the concept that uh, you know we can drive a lot of innovation with with technology, particularly using the likes of machine learning uh, for for you know applying artificial intelligence. But at the very end, uh, and I'm keen to get your insights uh, and thoughts on this, but um, it seems to be that we still need humans to do the final, I guess, you know, validation or checking and bringing some logic to the final part that you know if we've got a very simple model yes we can run it billions of times but sometimes we just have to put a human on top to make sure that we're not just iterating on something that doesn't actually make sense in the first place well good example is in the records keeping space yep uh, it's actually the the biggest cost when you are doing proper records keeping is actually repeating recurring costs when human will have to provide the metadata right for every single record Yep. And some companies have very complex, because of the compliance reasons, for example, yep. very complex seems. So it could be 46 different pieces of metadata human has to provide. Right. Well, our clients are not that bad. I think the worst or best is about 28. Mm -hmm. Now, when an archive is large one, I mean a huge one, you can, you can easily exist in an archive. You can extract a lot of data from there yep. and use that to train an AI. So human creation comes into play because we can then, based on what we have learned from the past, provide suggestions. We think these 23 metadata are something we can generate for you, and this is what we suggest. Right. So instead of human have, having need to go through and create all that, they will just approve, okay, this is good, next one. So okay. that, 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 that's where we will actually save a lot of time and effort, but still keep human in control. So. The other thing you mentioned that I'd like to get some insights from you and your personal experience or professional experience is that you talked about size and scale and speed. And I think this is where I'm certainly seeing with my clients that um, you know, we could throw 100,000 bodies at something, but it's still not going to scale at the level that we can achieve with ML or any form of machine learning uh, model where even just, you know, as you said, looking at something as simple as a document, well, not simple as a document, but you know, it's not tracking a 3D model of a kangaroo, but even just document processing, 
the cost of compute power and storage and network and IO and cloud service in particular these days is so low that we can scale up very fast. We can reiterate. If we don't like one model, we can make a change and run it and run it again and even run model models in parallel and do a comparative analysis at the end and see what they look like, right? Um, how does that apply to enterprise content management? And then I want to kind of get into the, the journey you made to deciding to build an environment and, and get some technical support and, and support from the likes of IBM. What types of approaches do you take to you know solving a problem and scaling it up and scaling it up to the point where you'd run to you know potentially hundreds of thousands of millions of documents? Well, good example is for example if you work with sales orders. Yeah. The company receives unique sales orders uh, from let's say hundreds of thousands of different trading partners. Right. Challenge there is that these trade sales orders are unique, and in order to automate that, you would end up having to do a major IT project. Right. They, typically co companies have this far, just ruining the bodies. So they yep. have lots of people around the globe opening up to emails, containing sales orders and typing them into SAP. Right. Now, the challenge there is that this is all error prone. You have good people who make no mistakes. And then you have people who make some mistakes and then you have some people who make even more mistakes. And the point is mistakes cost. Right. So now that we can take basically verified data from the, the kind of the good people right, uh, and use that to train an AI, we can actually duplicate the expertise that the best ones have and, and the accuracy and all that. Yep. So, so in in sense, uh, it's not just about throwing bodies to solve problems, because you have different kind of capabilities and people. Some people are just not as accurate or right. they're not as fast. So with AI, we are capturing kind of the best, the output from the best minds and repeating that mm -hmm. across the whole scale that we are working with. Right. Uh, computing power and storage cost, like you said, it costs basically nothing. Yeah, it's very cheap. It's cheap and uh, compared to, uh, well, human... And it doesn't get tired, right? It doesn't. Uh, but of course, we do make mistakes. Absolutely. A AI is no way 100% perfect. There's no silver bullet. No, but when it makes a mistake, we can easily track because the mistakes it makes tend to be quite similar. Yeah. So it doesn't do like human does random mistakes. Yeah. AI doesn't. So there is easily findable pattern. You can go trace and fix whatever you had once you kind of yeah, yeah. realize that this, is, this didn't go correct. Talk us through how you uh, came to the point where you decided to form a relationship with IBM. Um, at what point did you decide to try the Power Platform and, and work with IBM and see what that could do in comparison? So, one of the things in deep learning is, uh, now I'm talking about training. Yep. Inferencing is slightly different. But for training parties, how fast and how quickly you can push new data into your model on GPU. Right. And obviously we are greedy. So when you need to do as accurate model as possible, you want to fill up the GPU as much as possible. Yeah. That means for example, right now, I have a model running that takes almost 16 gigabytes. Right. Just for the model. Wow. And when, and the car has 16, 16 gigabytes. So it's like a, like 40 yeah. megabytes yeah, yeah. free. Now, when you have a large model, as large as possible, and you need to push stuff in the GPU. It comes down to uh, latency. P 
PCI Express has very high latency, yeah. but now IPM Power8 platform with NVLink directly from CPU to GPU yeah. has much lower latency. Okay. And this is actually where you will we will see a fairly significant uh, speed increase. Yeah, yeah. So tell us a little bit about the infrastructure and the stack you built. Um, give us a bit of insight into kind of what, what did you actually end up building and, and did you go through sort of a proof of concept and a trial first and then scale out or did you just go all in? Okay, so right now what we are actually uh, facing is the kind of scale out situation. Right. Because we have a repeat, highly repeat, repeatable product. Yep. And we need to be able to enable our partners across yep. the globe to get up as quickly as possible as, and as cheaply as possible. Yep. Now, setting, setting up a power, plat- power box mm-hmm. with a NVIDIA GPU and Power 8 or Power 9 processor is actually very quick right. when, when we are talking about deep learning. So basically, what we can now do is we ask partners to cure the box somewhere yep. and install Ubuntu, provide us a login right. and IP address. We'll log on and we can install Power AI in 30 minutes. Wow. It takes about 20 minutes to download it, two minutes to install, and then we have eight minutes for coffee. <laughs> I was waiting for that punchline. I thought there'd be a catch. Um, so the bulk of that is just download time, getting the, the image to install, and but basically it's a couple of minute deployment and then you're ready to go. Yeah, and, and at that point, every single box is, from deep learning perspective, yeah. identical. Right. We have exactly the same software, same dependencies, and everything is up and running. And then we just install our solution on top of that. Thinking about the journey you've had, uh, where you know, you, you've seen the opportunity to apply AI, you, you've done some trials, you started out with x86, you, you saw some, some reasons to go to a better platform, you've chosen the, the Power platform, you, by the sounds of things, started with Power 8, you're now looking at Power 9. Um, technology, uh, sort of buying decisions, uh, what kind of learnings can you share with folk who are listening who might want to just get a slightly shorter version than you had instead of a couple of decades? Uh, what learnings can you share around that journey of sort of the, the technology decision process you went through and uh, what pitfalls were that you learned and, and, and what I guess, you know, key learnings and insights would you share with folk who just want to kind of get the slightly shorter out? Well, when we were looking into Power Platform first, actually we had some internal resistance. Yeah. Uh, but that was because, you know, the IBM Power 5 and Power 6 and everything before Power 7 was kind of big Indian. Right. So, so the, the, for example, the bytes in an integrator, they were in a kind of a different order from yeah. x86. Yeah. And that actually kind of made a caused some trouble in the past and some significant trouble with some right. applications because right. you had to treat the pointers that were referring to uh, integer for example and parts of integer differently uh, now that since power 7 we have had little Indian mode yep uh, power power platform is pretty much compatible so if it compiles on x86 it will also compile nicely on right. power yep and uh, so I think that was the kind of the biggest internal challenge we had developers were thinking that we are now going into neck deep yeah. into um, Indian's problems. Yeah, but that, yeah. that just wasn't it. So that was kind of a, my yeah. personal experience was the biggest kind of internal issue. Uh, when IBM announced Minsky, the supercomputer yeah. with NVLink, uh, I was already kind of a fairly deep in the GPU technology and saw immediately that this is a game changer. So the decision for us to get the first one was actually very easy. Okay. Um, 
I'm really keen to understand, uh, I guess, you know, once you've gone through the process of, of actually building the, the, the physical platform, you've built a couple of user cases, um, then working with your clients, uh, uh, you know, talking about the technology you've gotten from IBM and some of the competitive, competitive advantages of the platform itself and some of the software stack, uh, how, do you, how do you then convey that to customers who might have actually had this view that IBM is, uh, so the AI is boring, sorry, um, how do you convey to customers that AI is not boring, that it's actually a really powerful and really uh, valuable thing to have at their fingertips and, and somebody that might have been used to it, particularly in a, a long-term customer who has been used to what you've got, they've got a fairly manual process, they've got humans that can just do it, they're used to taking weeks to do things. Uh, what kind of conversation do you have with them to sort of explain the value of AI and, and, and how sort of, you know, quote-unquote, AI is no longer boring? It's, it's, it's an exciting, sexy thing that should be applied to so many use cases, they just need to consider opening their eyes to it a little bit. Well, up this far, we every single client that we have started this exercise yep. to start it with some kind of a proof of concept or pilot with limited kind of exposure they want to see seeing is believing yeah and uh, obviously there's lots of hype around ai yeah and clients also kind of are skeptical because now many companies sell ai for us it has been a very simple approach so let's take a, a kind of limited use case right let's do a pilot or proof of concept yep. with your data and see how this applies into your business patterns. Okay. So take an everyday problem and, and I guess just show them, show them some key business benefits where they can do it leaner, keener, faster, cheaper. Well, it doesn't always have to be everyday problem. Like in this one case with the pension insurance company, right? Um, what they want to, for pension business, at least in Nordics, it's very important to help people not to retire prematurely. Right. So, but they can't do it if they don't understand how, what things kind of uh, indicate that people is in, person is in risk of retiring right. prematurely. Yeah. So this was, for example, a complete new kind of uh, approach for them because the structural data that they have available is not sufficient to predict. But doctor's certificates and medical records contain lots of clues about that. Right. But it's very difficult for human to go through large amount of medical records and categorize them okay on this person is comp actually is feeling that he's not very well uh, appreciated at work or or yeah. his working conditions have changed he's complained that to the doctor and so on okay ai with help from the specialists can actually do this kind of a classification and dig this kind of information out of those records and this is completely kind of a new business so ai is not it's not always just applying uh, AI to existing business problems, yeah. but to go where it has not been practically possible to go with the human labor. Right. So try try new things, and I guess that's part of the challenge of conveying the value, isn't it? It's just to explain to people that you know you're not trying to just hit something with a bigger hammer. It's a smarter hammer, and you're coming from sideways to so hit the nail sideways. Occasionally, it'll go in properly. It seems to me that a lot of what you're saying leads to the same sort of thing, and that is that. Um, in many ways, you know, the platform stack is sort of off the shelf, the ecosystem inside it and the software running on it is off, off the shelf. A lot of the business challenges have already been tackled and you're now just sort of tailoring them to people. So it seems to me that in many ways, this whole AI problem is kind of solved for the most part, particularly if you're leveraging IBM's platform and, and their software. Uh, and it's very much an off the shelf solution. So you're now able to sort of not worry about being heavily technical. You've got that support from IBM and the platform, the hardware and the software. 
but you can go back to your core business and actually work more intimately with the clients on what their problems are. It's kind of like an off-the-shelf AI. It's just an embedded assumption that you can make that you get this and buy the solution. It just works. Yes, that's how it is. And that's how it's going to be more and more. And this is a game changer, really, isn't it? Because I mean, if you think about, you know, from the days when you were a kid and you were playing with your uh, Commodore 16 and having to do it all yourself, to then potentially, you know, I guess, you know, getting a broader reach around when you started your company and had to potentially build your own platform and software. Um, it must be a significant uh, competitive advantage you've got now over, your, over the rest of the industry you're working in to be able to actually do that, to, to not have to go through that evolution in January and building the systems and the hardware and the software and the clusters and the artificial intelligence models and so forth. Surely, tell us about the competitive edge that gives you now that you can just buy an off-the-shelf solution. Well, for us, it's about how to scale. Yeah. How to be able to repeat what we have in, in every single country in Europe and America and Latin America yep. and Asia. Right. And since we have taken the road that we will be working heavily with partners, local yep. companies who already know their customers, who know the business problems, they just need to add AI into that mix. Right. And we can do that with the help of Power AI and Power Platform, very quick, very fast and effortlessly for, the, for our partners and for the clients. Are we headed that way with the sorts of things you're seeing with the clients? Is it, is it starting to be the case that have we hit the tipping point where to not look at how you would leverage AI and leverage the kind of capabilities you've got, particularly in your industry, um, is it considered now normal? Is it considered abnormal not to be leveraging this kind of capability and, and, and simplifying some of the processes of removing risk? Well, I think uh, it's, it's more, it's going to, there is going to be a huge division. Some companies are going to be able to use AI and they, they, they use it. Right. And then some companies who are not will lose it. Okay. Uh, so so it's, it's kind of a, at the moment, there were the earlier occurs. Um, yeah. But now the businesses who see kind of that human does not need to do the low value jobs. Yep. Human needs to do higher value jobs and higher value things. They will prosper. And those who really don't see that yet right. will have a severe competitive disadvantage. And that's going to, we will see a huge change. It has already started, but next year and a half, we will have a kind of a major division point okay. for businesses, I think. So one other question I've got for you is, um, you know, there's a number of challenges we have around building anything to do with AI. Um, training data seems to be, or training data sets seems to be a really big challenge. How have you tackled that? Give us some insight into why training data is important and, and kind of where the benefits are with, with good quality training data uh, and specifically how you've approached that and, and where you've leveraged the IBM platform to simplify that process. Okay, the basic challenge when we work with the unstructured data is that traditional machine learning systems require about half a million samples or more. Right. That's a good start because uh, if you don't really do a clever tricks on, on uh, preparation of data, yeah. um, the AI needs to understand the language completely and start making sense and structure out of it. Right. Now, the what the way we we cheat badly on this. You cheat. I like yes. that. I always so, like cheats. So we use Watson NLU natural language understanding. Okay. To pre-process and prepare all material first. Okay. To describe it. So instead of feeding raw text to neural network, yeah. we're actually feeding the raw text and the description of right. each word. Okay. How, what what, the, what NLU thinks this is, like this yeah. is the name, this is product code, and, and so on. 
So it's in part, it's like kind of like a lexicon that sort of shortens the process to getting quality value out of the data. Yes. So instead of having having to learn everything from from dummy samples, yeah. we tell a lot about the structure of data that is coming in. Okay. And so instead of needing half a million samples, we can do fine with two thousand. Wow. That's uh, that. When you scale that out, that's a significant change into what you had because you're running millions of samples to just thousands. Uh, give us a, give us some examples of that you've already run. Well, for privacy, okay. privacy data, because um, privacy data can be very complex. Yeah. Uh, some of it is is like social security number. Okay. But miles of your car. Yeah. It's also privacy information, and depending on the context, you you might have to treat it as such. Right. So, uh, AI, you can act the client, uh, the, our GDPR AI minor product, for yeah. example, it it relies on every single client providing sample data from their current existing uh, data sources yeah so that we can actually uh, <laughs> we can actually uh, take the data tell ai in this context this is privacy data and yeah. this is how it's expressed yeah so please go and go ahead and look into these patterns how they are expressed okay and replicate this to us to a new document that you encounter right and I imagine through that process, once you build the capability to do that, you can you can reuse some of that, right? So from the sounds of things, most of the things you build are fairly reusable. Uh, this sounds like a process where you've, you've fine-tuned it, you've got it down to a fairly fine art. Now you can repeat that process on other challenges. Yes, and, and that's especially true within a client. So when you start applying uh, AI for one business problem, and then you identify four more business problems, yeah. and you want to apply AI to another problem, you really don't want to create the new AI for that problem. Yeah. Because what happens is, let's say you have 2,000 samples for this problem and 2,000 samples for this problem. And you get certain confidence if you train them separately. But if you combine them in a single pile, mm. the AI becomes surprisingly more accurate. Yeah. Because it actually learns structure of this client, language of this client, yeah. better and better. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that's why I was very keen to understand the challenge you've had around uh, training data and training dating sets. Because uh, as you just said, if you apply one set of training data to a problem, you get an outcome. If you multiply that with multiple training data sets and you consistently repeat that, you get far better insights and far better value over scale. Before we wrap up, I'd love to hand you a crystal ball, a virtual crystal ball, get you to gaze into it. Three to five years down the track, uh, where are you guys as a company and um, where's AI as a, as a concept? Well, three to five years forward, I think, uh, in my vision, we will actually get involved with quantum computing in two okay. years. It's not there yet, but we need some, uh, how would I say it? Uh, once the tooling matures a bit more and we get the new kind of a thinking yeah. around how we can apply neural networks on quantum computers. I think they will be a next huge thing for AI. Okay. We are not there yet. Yeah. Um, the quantum computers are kind of uh, so simple at the moment mm, and mm. we don't have mapping from existing AI machine learning kind of uh, world into right. a quantum world. Yeah. It's it's maturing fast. And uh, in my my world we will get involved with that in about 2 years from now. Okay. So, in about four years from now, I think uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence is able to leverage heavily quantum computing, and because that that's actually something that will suit very well. Oh, it's a perfect problem for it, isn't it? It is. So, and we really don't need that much more qubits than are available, but mm -hmm. we need tooling how we can actually change 
change the way we apply existing neural network kind of problems. Yeah. We don't have mapping to quantum computers yet. Yeah, yeah. But once it is there, that is going to be a huge thing. Um, Company-wise, yourselves, uh, next natural step from here. So you've gone through the Power 8, Power 9 process. I imagine you'll be doing a bit of a tech, tech refresh and, uh, and I guess looking to either cycle out some of the older kit or just you know scale out uh, horizontally and grow larger. Um, final thoughts on some of the things that you'll be looking to, your relationship with IBM and some of the platform things over the next three to five years and, and how you'll leverage the latest version of the platform? Well, obviously, we will keep ourselves current. Mm -hmm. So we will update the environments. And yeah offerings to our clients because lots of this stuff is also sold as a service to clients yeah so we need to accure more and more power to do do what we do yeah yeah you got to scale up with the demand yeah uh look thank you so much for making time to catch up with me Ari. it's been absolutely fantastic it's some to get to know you to start with and your background and i think you've got a very very unique background which is how you've come to build such a unique and powerful company great to know a bit more about the company itself and i look forward to seeing where it's going in the next three to five years Really great insights into the formation of the relationship with IBM because I think a lot of companies um, are probably just sitting there wondering, you know, how do we go about that? So it's important for them to know they can just pick up the phone and, and build a relationship there. Yours has run for a couple of decades and it's been well established, but I imagine that uh, there's a short version of that can happen over a couple of weeks. Um, I was really keen to, to learn more about, uh, and it was great to get that insight from you, of what the uh, ramp up speed up time is. You know, traditionally, a couple of years to build something, now you're talking a couple of weeks. Uh, I was really surprised by what you said with regard to just getting up and running a couple of hours of the platform. So that's that's an exciting outcome. And uh, I look forward to seeing where you're going in the next couple of years with regard to leveraging the new platforms, particularly the Power9 that's just come out. Thank you so much. Again, thank you for joining us for IBM Power Systems from here to AI podcast. And apologies for the little bit of banging and clashing in the background. If you're interested in learning more information about navigating the journey of implementing AI into your business, please visit ibm.com slash enterprise AI. I'm Des Blanchfield, and thanks for listening from here to AI.